Okay, good evening everyone. Um, today we're lucky to have Dr. Peter Bray from the University of Oxford presenting to us. Uh, Pete has been at uh, the forefront or spearheading new approaches to the spread of metal in the last uh, 10 years or so, something yeah, like that. Too long. Uh, he started his PhD, uh, sorry, he started first was at Bradford, that's correct isn't it, yep. for undergraduate and masters and since then has been at Oxford ever since. Uh, started looking at Britain principally and reappraising the evidence for metal work and the movement of metal in Britain and Ireland. Since then has expanded out into Europe which we're going to hear a lot more about today and has been telling me all about his plans for world domination and going to <laughs> Moscow and Beijing and all sorts of other places in coming years. So I'll hand you straight over. Thanks very much. Uh, Thanks for the invite and thanks for coming to talk about copper chemistry, which is a very hard sell. I should admit now that some of the words in the title are stretching the truth a little bit. Unfortunately, coping, stress-free, fun and profit, it's not all guaranteed. But this is where, I th when I first got money to start uh, doctoral research, this is what I hoped and thought I'd be doing, which is to look at these amazing early Bronze Age objects from Britain and Ireland. So on the, on the left there we have the Knockney Hoard from Galway from around 2300 BC, uh, made of uh, red uh, of copper. On the right, we have some early tin bronze from uh, Scotland, the Collinard uh, Farm Hoard. And then as we move through, we have the Uretan Hoard with the uh, uh, spearheads and the flanged axes from the end of the early bronze age. What I got money to do, what I promised the funding body, is that we'd look at regional traditions of metal use. We'd bring together some new concepts about active objects and agency and link it with the chemical composition and think about real people using objects and that's what we promised that we'd deliver. And using the 4,000 uh, objects uh, in museum uh, collections, which are laid out in this nice uh, sequence, uh, Colin Burgess, Stuart Needham and so forth. We felt when we asked for money that we had quite a good handle on, on the raw materials and therefore we could actually jump off and try and bring the science and the social archaeology together more. What the problem turned out actually to be is that the tools that we were about to use are interesting to say the least, extremely challenging. So we have the problems we all know with the archaeological data set, um, especially when you're looking at early uh, metal, some, we don't have the organic associations, uh, the uh, recovery rates are highly variable and so forth, but we all know that kind of stuff. We have the material culture theory which we were reading and then we were trying to force to work with the, the archaeological science data and that we've thought a lot about that but that's for another day and then we have the problem it's of the scientific data that we're aiming to specialise in. Uh, so the on ongoing problem is the pragmatic interaction of these three things and then we can throw in chronology as well and throw in some other data sets which has been written about endlessly for the last hundred years and we've pitched into that debate as well. The main, uh, main thrust of the talk today is that there's a huge amount of chemical data out there for early metal, but my contention is that it's the ambition has been quite limited of how to use that, it's not been archaeologically useful, it's often been extremely confusing, and sometimes it's been actively unhelpful. So to, this is my contention, is that chemical composition data has been used in three main ways. Uh, none of which are often published as an appendix in the back of a report. It's not been really fully integrated into our understanding of the British and Irish Bronze Age and the European Bronze Age, as we'll talk about today. So we have alloy sequences. I mean, remarkably recent, really. I mean, the 
it was work in the 1950s and 60s that really showed us that we have some evidence of some kind of copper age, some kind of tin bronze age, leaded bronze in the, in the late bronze age. And that, so this is very new, but we didn't really jump much beyond that. Why do these alloy sequences occur? What do they really mean? We've had a huge amount of effort, starting in 1690 and ongoing today, to characterise uh, the chemistry of early objects. So there's been a huge amount of intellectual expenditure on, on what copper alloys are made out of, and there's been relatively less on interpretation. So what we often resort to is either very broad quasi-chronological sequences, like I said before, or a stats approach where we put all the numbers into a stats package and hope that the structure that those stats are telling us are useful. And that's a big problem, I think. And thirdly, is an obsession with provenance, but not, not just where the, where the metal comes from. It's a very it's an extremely simplistic, narrow version of what provenance could mean in a world where people are exchanging metal and reusing metal and trying to exchange metal in realistic ways. The archaeological scientists haven't engaged with that literature very much. So this is some, these are some traditional approaches to chemical composition data that I inherited when I started my DPhil and we're trying to break away from in some ways. So this is the first big approach. This comes after new cheap chemical analysis became fully available in the late 50s moving into the 60s and suddenly we had 30,000 uh, data sets. It's a remarkable effort. They went, uh, so this is the team from Stuttgart, the Stuttgart beginning of metallurgy project and they, they rolled across Europe going to every major museum including the National Museum of Wales and analysing everything. And to cope with that, they went to a mathematician and said, find us the maximum difference within, within this data, please. So it's kind of a proto-cluster analysis. And then we end up, so the total population of chemistry is at the top there, bismuth, antimony, silver, nickel, arsenic. And then there's a series of decision points to split all this chemistry up into neat blocks. This came under immediate fire because they started claiming that all the Irish metal work was closely associated, closely associated with the Carpathian, Carpathian Basin which the archaeologists didn't like for some reason. The metallurgists hated it for other reasons that the bismuth, which is their first main decision point, segregates out and it highly concentrates in particular areas. So to claim that all of European metallurgy at the first instance could be split depending if there's 0.08 bismuth or not was troubling to them. So the same project went away, talked to more mathematicians, and then went even more extreme. So they listened to us in a way because they got rid of the bismuth. But this is eight years later, and they had even more complex classification schemes split up into even more groups, all of which are still quoted every day in the literature. As if quoting it is enough, is my kind of contention. It's like, okay, so we have a, class a classification system, which is very complex and hard to understand. Does it facilitate um, communication, and does it actually reveal anything useful archaeologically? Peter Northover, who many, many people here will have worked with, produced this sequence of classifications as part of his project at the National Museum of Wales. And this is what we quote in Britain and Ireland. We don't use the, the sand project, which happens on the continent. We use this. Going from principle, again, using these kind of diagnostic elements. So at the top, we have arsenic, antimony, and silver. And then we have the alphabetical sequence going through of different presence or absence groups, sometimes at different levels in order to split up his data set. And it's a modified version of this that we're now pushing forward. The problem is, is that this structure, in reality, is a history of Welsh metalwork. 
So at the top, it turns out that the, the A metal happens to be associated with the biggest uh, uh, impurity pattern associated with early Bronze Age. B is the second biggest group. C is the third biggest group. Uh, this is not a universal system. This is something designed by him to make sense of his Welsh work, but we've had to stretch it and pull it uh, in order to try and make it work for other uh, regions. So we appreciate the, the fact that he can define at least some kind of variation, but we desperately need something useful and universal. To do that, we've started again in some ways. We've collected a new uh, digital database of as much data as we can get our hands on, uh, which is now digitized and uh, will be rolled out online very soon. Uh, this is around 50,000 artifact sets, taking in the work over the last 60 or 70 years of all these uh, scholars, and we're trying to think about how, to, how we can bring all this together and do something useful with it. So, lots of different people using different techniques of different quality over the last 100 years. What is generally agreed upon within metal chemistry is that the arsenic, the antimony, the silver and nickel is diagnostic. Their presence or absence tells us something. It's linked in some way with uh, the history of that uh, unit of metal. And we've done something extremely simple that doesn't involve cluster analysis or com complex statistics. We just want to, in some way, open up this data in the first instance. So we're just looking at presence-absence groups of these four things. So if you have four things uh, to choose between and you want the presence or absence of them, the permutations of that lead to 16 groups. These groups aren't sources, they're not particularly archaeological traditions necessarily, but it's just some way of getting into this data without imposing too many assumptions upon it. Today I'll talk mostly about uh, arsenic copper, sometimes with a bit of tin, and arsenic, antimony and silver copper, again sometimes with a bit of tin, because these, these turn out to be extremely useful and important to us. So we split the data roughly into 16 groups, but unlike past assumptions, we hope that there's differences within the groups. We hope there's structure caused by the life history of the object, life history of the unit. We want real people mixing, using this stuff over a long period of time. We want to be able to find that and define it. So, and we also want things to move between groups over time because of mixing and melting and different, different chemical processes. And so we plot things by object type, geographical location, chronological period. Um, trying to map this properly into local archaeology. And we, as I say, we expect to see remelting and mixing, but we also hope to see stuff that's associated with uh, gift exchange, commoditization, display, use, and so forth. But what do I mean by stuff moving around a different structure? When something, when the copper alloy is melted, uh, the final chemical composition is different to where we began because stuff will oxidise at different rates. The chemistry will change at different points. So we expect arsenic to oxidise away because it's extremely vulnerable to loss. Silver, occasionally found uh, in native form, is extremely resistant to oxidation. And so we have a suite of elements with, in small amounts, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 1% within the copper base that are diagnostic have long been seen as important to know whether they're there or not, but we also, they also have different properties which allow us to tease out more information, more archaeologically useful information. So if we start with 
this composition, as a rule of thumb, we expect certain things to go up, certain things to go down. And by looking at the whole combination, we can find some useful stuff. So we're arguing for some kind of relative clock. More melting events lead to uh, larger chemical shifts. So we can actually start to see recycling uh, and so on that's only, uh, and mixing that's only had lip service paid to it before. So people create classifications that, of course, there must have been lots of recycling and melting. And that's usually where the argument stops. We're engaging, hopefully, with real people using real things. Which is very different to a strong statistical approach. So if you have a multivariate approach to the final composition, that's squeezing together a huge amount of variation. Some from the ore source, some from mixing events, some from recycling, some from digging up old metal and reusing it hundreds of years later. It's squeezing everything into one group, and you lose the, the, the archaeological argument. You use the flow through. And we're trying to identify these separately. And believe it or not, all this actually works really well. Uh, we wrote a paper uh, last year that explains some of the arguments in detail. So today I'm just very quickly going to run through uh, three different case studies. One looking at metal flow, how we define it in terms of source, quantity, reuse, mixing, deposition, re uh, curation and so forth. The second, technological processes. Um, can we identify different ways of uh, alloying tin into copper, for example? And the third one is something about People's in, one of those people's engagement with metal, their conception of the material, display, axe design, and so forth. So it's very, diff it's very difficult to directly characterise metal flow. People, uh, Stuart Needham's written excellent models about it, people have theorised about it. We want to see it directly from this huge 50,000 composition set database. So we have, in some sense, the ultimate source of the copper and tin. We have the practicals, so that would be the mine. We have the practical source of the copper and tin, which away from the mining areas is most likely to be your neighbour's uh, metal or metal you find in the ground. There's a practical way of people who are actually getting the stuff that may be incredibly divorced from the ultimate ore source. And then very more interestingly to me is what did they think of the copper and tin? Where did they conceive their metal was coming from? How were they engaging with it and using it? So we're trying to characterise local, region, regional, continental, uh, hemispherical metal use and expression, and then infer all these other different processes within all this. And then, ultimately, the source of technological ideas, decorative techniques, may come from a very different place and be placed on top of this underlying metal flow. So finally, a map. So this is Europe. All the data I'm going to show for now is of uh, first, uh, early Bronze Age 1, so roughly before uh, 1800 BC, very roughly. And this is one of our sections of data. This is our copper and arsenic group. Occasionally with a bit of tin, especially if you're in Cornwall. And we've split it up by region. So how many objects, what percentage of objects in Region 11, northern, northern Portugal, or Spain probably, how many objects in this region show this uh, uh, copper signature out of all the objects we have from that place. So if we plot this data we have immediately some very useful, interesting archaeological structure. So we have a real hotspot of deposition of this particular chemistry group in southern Iberia, which maps extremely well in place and time with the known mines from there. We also have something going on in Anatolia. But there's a beautiful drop away as this metal is exchanged moves up the Atlantic coast. 
up towards France and southern Britain. And interestingly for me, this doesn't occur up into southern France. It's the direction of flow of metal from this type, just from this simple plot, seems to be north. north. But we can go one stage further because of that differential oxidation effect I was talking about. So this stuff is chock full of arsenic, and then it's oxidized away as a series of remelting events occurs as this metal is actually used by people in the, in the local region. And by the time it gets into England, it's gone well down the, the depletion pathway. But we can still see an original connection with the mine in southern Iberia, but would they see a real connection? This works extremely well when we actually start to look at the object typologies, which of course give us the date mostly as well. So we have a series of quite, so this is the PBF for Iberian axis. We see a series of tight clusters in different regions based on shape, uh, based on regional metal expression, which we can connect back to remelting events. So we start to see something along the lines of people taking in metal from their from the neighbours and then putting their own identity on it by remelting and using it. And we can see conceptually that makes a lot of sense, especially in areas that have no metal mines, but we can actually demonstrate it as well in areas that also have mines. To give you another example, this is the same period, same geographical scope. This time we're very interested in, this is our group 12, arsenic, antimony and silver. And plotting it gives us a radically different distribution pattern. So this is, some of, some of this would be called ring metal by, by the experts, but what we can see very clearly through just this ubiquity approach, how much of each region is, uh, how many objects in each region is showing this type, that there's a real concentration in the east and outs, and it's falling away as we move north, and it's falling away as we move east and south, and there's not much movement towards the west, which is very interesting. At the same time, uh, between Ireland and Scotland mostly, that's the, the Ross Island signature. So again, this is backed up by the dating and the, uh, the mining evidence extremely well. And we can see beyond the mine now, we can see how this metal flows beyond. And again, we can say, play the same game with this arsenic clock to see relatively prime and derived uh, metal. And then we can put on top of this the typologies and, the, and decora decoration patterns and so forth. So we have the killer, killer, killer high axis in Ireland and the Migdale axis, contemporary Migdale axis in Scotland. And we can see this effect of how these large killer, killer high axis of around 600 grams were molten, cast into smaller uh, Scottish axes at the same time. You can see the, the, within the metal chemistry this relationship, which has been theorised before, but now we can start to see quantity and, and see this uh, real technological drift. To take it one stage further, each of these coloured lines is a different region of either Ireland or Britain all within the same copper group that's associated with uh, Ross Island. And Ireland is chock full of the, uh, these impurity patterns, the arsenic, the antimony, and silver, arsenic and antimony in this case. And then as we move, as we plot the different regions, so Scotland beneath it, then the southwest, then central England, and finally eastern England, we can see a series of drops as each, as metal is taken in, reused, traded, and so forth. And we can begin to plot this in more detail to see a huge flow of metal through the island of Ireland over the sea into Scotland and then it drifts down Britain. And very interestingly, this, isn't, this pattern isn't occurring in Wales at this point, 
because of uh, the beginning of local indigenous metallurgy shifting the signatures. Uh, Stuart Needham's metalwork assemblages are a rough chronology, and over time we can also see the reuse of old metal. Uh, the Ross Island mine flooded in 1900 BC, approximately, and the use of this, uh, the, the, the incidence of this uh, copper, uh, chemistry drops off a cliff, but objects are still found with this, found with highly depleted echoes of that original chemistry. So incredibly beaten up, reused objects 500 years after the prime metal was uh, being produced at the site, but still being churned through. And this is interesting to me about how long stuff can be retained. So this is quite a hard slide to read, but what I'm trying to show here is how things can jump between these broad groups as well. So if we look for structure within one group, convincing connections and fall-off patterns exist across Europe and within Britain and Ireland. This is the data just for Ireland. This huge red splodge is the production of the uh, Ross Island mine. 90% of all the very earliest uh, Irish metal is from this one place, continuing over into 80% in the, in the next phase, about 2200 BC. This is the drop off the cliff I was talking about where production ceases and suddenly only 10% of the uh, beginning of the, of the second millennium's metals made out of this stuff. But interestingly, these other types show up for seven and nine, which are the daughter products of this original type. They're the heavily beaten up versions of that original relatively pristine metal type. So we have an original quite pure reuse of, 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 of one mine, then that old metal stays in circulation, but because it's uh, oxidized and mixed to such a degree, we see it spreading through these other types, which we can show a very clear, clear link with. Meanwhile, over here, <coughs> this is the Mount Gabriel mine, just beginning. So we're trying to see depletion products. Not so. All these groups aren't sources. They're they're trying to engage with some kind of structure that tells us something about real uh, metallurgy at this time. And then we can start to talk about how long metal is in circulation after mines close, and sometimes it's a remarkably long time. If you're doing this in a one-shot statistical approach, without too much uh, archaeological context or uh, critical thinking, all this structure would be seen by some people as clusters and groups separate. What we actually see is one mine isolated in Southern Ireland relatively, uh, creating a confusion of chemistry after its closure. Go back to the Central European story coming out of the Alps. We can say we can do the same kind of thing again, looking at these depletion patterns. So we have the what we think is relatively close to the source, moving forward by different regional groups, and this the chemistry of this starts. So along the bottom here is arsenic percentage, and on the y-axis again is percentage of the objects in that region. Starts with a lot of arsenic in it, because it's relatively close to the source. And then as we move northwards into the green, purple, and orange regions, the arsenic is depleted and oxidizes away and moves left. All of this can be associated with that original mining event, but we don't have to create these artificial divisions. We can see a real flow of metal blending together. So we see a change in balance of prime to recast metal as we move north. Local types, regional metal expression, and so forth. This is getting hopefully closer to what Stuart Needham was 
arguing for in terms of how much of this stuff is old, how much is new, how much is thought of as local, how much of it is directly traded from outside and so forth. So this is a, an early Bronze Age <coughs> uh, signature, which is very characteristic, these kind of short regional interactions and metal exchange when we move into the medieval period, which we're also doing. Suddenly, entire countries look the same as we have centralized, organized uh, uh, collection points, production and redistribution and so forth across the North Sea. But this, is, this looks very early bronze age. And we can do the same thing about the, the relative prime products and their daughter products. So this is the, the focus of this group here. And then if we plot the abundance of stuff that we know is heavily beaten up versions of it, it quite pleasingly plots away from that core area, but showing some kind of underlying metal exchange. Moving on to something a bit different. So can we also use this kind of structure to infer technological processes. So here I'll be looking at how is tin alloyed. So we know that after a couple of hundred years, all the metal in Britain and Ireland from around 2200 onwards, copper alloys are tin bronze. But there's hidden structure in there that I think is very interesting to interpretations of the early bronze age. And this is using this arsenic clock idea again. As stuff is depleted away, it's been more beaten up. So we have two main models for how tin bronze can be made, broadly. We have the solid addition of tin, and we have the addition, of, uh, the surface reduction of cassiterite. So cassiterite's the main ore that uh, would have been uh, washing out of the rocks in Cornwall. And the concept for this is uh, slightly more difficult to understand than producing solid tin, mixing it with solid copper. What we're trying to do here is put the the mineral, which is about 80% by weight tin, on top of molten copper, add lots of charcoal, redu reducing atmosphere, and the tin seeps into the copper to produce a bronze. Now, in practical terms, what people have found is that uh, because of the, 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 the waste products on the surface and because of the, the amount of time it needs to be molten and so forth, there's a practical limit of tin that can seep into the copper through that process. So cycles of this have to occur in order to top up the... Uh, amount of uh, more fresh crystallized, but on more seeps through. So the cycles of heating and melting. When people make tin bronze uh, with solid tin, that cycle event doesn't necessarily have to take place. It's more likely that you can have just you can weigh out your raw ingredients and make a bronze. So if we use this arsenic clock idea, what we're saying is lots of tin, but not much tin the same number of melting events can create a tin bronze if you have solid tin, because you weigh out your raw materials. A lot or a little, just one block of blue. If you're trying to use this cassiterite idea, people, everyone we've spoken to tells us you need these cycles of heating, you need lots of separate melting events. The amount of tin is actually dependent on the amount of time it's stayed molten, therefore a lot of arsenic would have had time to escape compared to a low tin bronze. Believe it or not, and I've been accused of making this up, this actually works in reality. So this is a plot of all the, right, so we have to, we're trying to compare like with like to see this structure. So these are all axes, Britain and Ireland, made out of stuff that we know is from Ross Island. Relatively pure, it's not been beaten up like the later periods, this is relatively fresh stuff. We have a main sequence here from 5% tin over to 11% tin that shows this effect, that in order to get a lot of, t and this is all, these aren't dilution effects, 
because there's a lot of tin here, we've multiplied that out in order to make sure that we're not seeing uh, a washed out signal that would create this gradient. What we're trying to see here is that there's a, a time, uh, time uh, correspondence with lots of tin. It's taken a lot of time to get this tin into the copper. And our best explanation for this is that they're using cassiterite, not solid tin, at the beginning of, beginning of the Bronze Age. This all makes sense to me because we have a very steep angle for the arsenic, which is the blue line, a relatively shallow angle for the antimony. Arsenic's more vulnerable to loss. We seem like we've got the whole system here. All, the argument hangs together that they're not actually using solid tin, despite the fact we're now into what we call the true Bronze Age. And this shows up in other copper types as well, which is nice. And we see cassiterite use in lots of other related industries. Well, industries are bad phrase, but in lots of materials uh, which are contemporary. So we have Nigel Meeks talking about the cassiterite to surface tin axis at this time. We have uh, Alison Sheldon and uh, Andrew Shortland's work on faience, where you see lots of tin in English faience and Scottish faience showing a book they argue is uh, cassiterite in the glazing. The main source of tin, going from the previous art argument, is their neighbour's bronze. But at some point, mineral tin is being used, not solid tin. And what's extremely nice is in later periods, the line goes flat. And the line goes flat, which we interpret as solid tin being available, at the same time as we start seeing tin slabs as well that shows direct uh, reduction of tin. So from the Kellogg's uh, Barrow, famously, in Cornwall. And then if we skip into the Middle Bronze Age, the line continues to be flat. So these are PAL staves, lots of tin or not much tin. It's all gone in, uh, been added in one operation, probably associated with solid tin. So our argument is there's an entire hidden Bronze Age structure. There's a long overlap of interesting minerals, into, uh, use of uh, this mineral in various different places, which bleeds into the production of bronze, which is very separate to a designed, planned, separate, smelted uh, element that's then added in order to achieve uh, hardness or whatever. This stuff is moving around in mineral form. Final case study to show the kind of stuff that we're trying to achieve with chemistry is alloy design, axe design, colour decoration display. How do people, what do they want from their tin? <coughs> Mineral tin. So, first of all, obviously, every uh, metals lecture has to show this kind of thing where we have to remember what these things would have originally looked like. So this is the amazing reconstruction of the Ashgrove dagger, uh, published, well, this, this image is taken from Clark's Symbols of Power at the Age of Stonehenge. And on the left is what we excavate. So, potentially beautiful looking things, lustre, uh, reflections, and so forth, must, may have been a big part of the, uh, the role of these things in, 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 real, in real life. But how can we start to demonstrate this kind of thing? When did colour display of tin bronze become important? The answer, surely, is extremely quickly. So, we have Axes from Britain, and, uh, England, and Scotland. Uh, I'm not too sure about the data from Ireland, but we have tin surfaces extremely early on. So the famous Barton Stacey axe has, as we analyse it now, 60% tin surface. It, uh, 
extrapolating out this stuff, this would have looked silver, white, compared to the, the red copper that they would have, uh, the red raw material that they would have uh, began with. So that's very interesting that they're dipping, they're not dipping, there's this constituent surface interaction I was talking about, but the, the end result is that the axis looks silver. When did that cross over? When did that surface become intrinsic to the entire design of the whole object and what they wanted to show off? And how did that relationship develop? So this is some more chemistry. So this is, starting top left, the oldest uh, period of the, uh, the English metal ages, so around 2400, 2500 BC. And then it moves down the left column onto the right column. This should need as metalwork assemblages. So each of these graphs covers around the graphs covers around 20, 250 years, 200 years roughly. So we go from a full copper age to quite a lot of tin bronze at around 10% tin. And then as we move forward through these periods, the tin percentage constantly increases. And we believe this structure. We've, we've added in more, more recent data, yes, the tin percentage of, of axes constantly increases over a thousand years. But what we're arguing for is that this is not an increase in tin extraction. What this actually is, is an increasingly sophisticated way of handling the raw materials to get a desired effect. So we start with red copper. And then we move forward through uh, these different percentages till we end up with, well, this, is, this would be a Roman mirror kind of composition. But the kind of colour range we're dealing with, usually in the, in the uh, British early Bronze Age, would be from red at the top through to, to grey. And it's obviously very hard to show off luster and reflectivity, but that must have been a big part of this as well. So over a thousand years, we still agree that we start with the top left and we move our way into this white and reflective areas. But what's extremely interesting is that the weight, the size of the early Bronze Age British axis gets steadily smaller. So we start with the earliest huge copper axis around half a kilo with a big range. Uh, and this is followed on uh, with the earliest tin bronze axis. Then as we go through time they get lighter and lighter. So the Aretan axis, quite small with the big flange cutting edges, uh, the modal group is actually less than 100 grams, 20% of where we started 1,000 years before. So if we take that increasing amount of tin percentage, multiply it out by the, how big these axes actually are, we get something remarkable, which is that the amount of tin per axe, which is what this graph shows, stays the same for 1,000 years. Each, uh, and by the same, I mean it's not exactly the same distribution, statistically identical distribution from the earliest tin bronze use through to around 1500 BC. So what we have is that there is no more tin around. It's just been used in much more interesting and clever ways. The apparent tin percentage, the apparent tin content rises because they're lowering the axe, but they're lowering the, lowering the weight of the axe in a very specific way. It's very sophisticated. What they're doing is they're going from the left, which is kind of Migdale axis, slightly later elsewhere axis, to these wasted forms with this large cutting edge. So they're going from this, so the amount of tin on average between that and that is identical in, gram, in grams, but this will look silver, whiter, more reflective compared to these earlier types. The cutting edge stays exactly the, 
roughly the, the same size. Uh, so it's just as visible, but it's even more visible because it's got this precious material locked up within it, apparently in greater, greater amounts. And what's wonderful as well to back up this whole argument is that the decoration shifts as well. We move from a situation where this is um, Ella Schlittenberg's uh, PBF. You go from decoration across the entire object. Incidentally, on rock art, these are never shown half it. They're, sh they're all shown uh, pretty much as, as they are there, actually. And when they're found in uh, contexts where organic uh, uh, materials survive, they're not found with the handle, they're found put in leather bags and so forth. Anyway, but, so this overall decoration moves to the point of display, which is the, the cutting edge. At the same time, the overall, as I keep repeating, the overall mass of metal goes down, but you get more bang for your buck at the end. Anyway, that's me showing you some three major ways that we're trying to do something more interesting with copper chemistry. I realised that was <laughs> quick, but please find me if any of these ideas are interesting to you. But key further challenges, one is to persuade people that we're not insane, but <laughs> assuming that we're right, assuming that we can look at copper chemistry in a more reasonable way than just putting it into statistical packages, after that, and then seeing these variations, these clocks. After that, we want to look at chronology properly. We want to look at properly at local stories in their local context, which obviously is data quality and flexibility. Anyone who's ever tried to look at this stuff knows that you get a list of numbers, and if you're lucky, a find, uh, find spot or find name, which is completely divorced to any kind of archaeological context or that kind of mainstream debate. So we're spending a lot of time just putting back the connections that were there at excavation or at um, museum accession. This overall synthesis can operate on a number of levels and it is tried to be data-based. So it can work on the relationship between Northern Ireland and Western Scotland. And as Richard mentioned, we are about to do hopefully the Northern Hemisphere. But this doesn't guarantee that it'll work on the conceptual scale. So there's a great deal of further work is necessary to break out of the old orthodoxy about how to use metal chemistry. We are talking to social archaeologists, conceptual archaeologists. We have a lot of views on object biography and how that may not be a helpful term and better ways of integrating data and so forth. So we are still part of that ongoing debate about essentially why can't we all just get along. <laughs> and we're doing this in many other places than just Bronze Age Europe. And it does seem to work time and time again. This may just be a sensible approach to what we're trying to do. So this works very well with the mining evidence, as I've tried to mention as I went through. So we've got Simon Timberlake's redating of the mines, Alan Williams' amazing PhD on the Great Orm, excuse me, Billy O'Brien's work at Ross Island. It all keys in nicely together. We're working with Roger Doonan, who I believe talked to you quite recently. So he's doing some experimental smelting, remelting for us. We're trying to then tie that into a better, proper understanding of the thermodynamics of these systems rather than just vaguely saying, we, we hope it goes down and this goes up, we're really trying to do the proper experimental chemistry. Oli Kunal, uh, who we've just lost to Leicester, unfortunately, uh, has done some great work looking at the flow of metal around the Persian Gulf, uh, again covering the early metal ages as a whole, including copper alloys and early Iron Age uh, Iran. Laura Peuchetti is looking at, in more detail, at alpine metal uh, across the Chalcolithic into the early Bronze Age boundary doing a lot of great stuff with GIS to really work out appropriate scales and how we can really tie this data together. Tori Sainsbury is looking at 
monument, church monumental brasses from 1100 AD through to the Industrial Revolution. And there, the, the patterns are completely different. So we have this small down the line exchange of metal in the early Bronze Age turning into, uh, well, the modern world. And we were working with Professor Jen John May and Jessica Rawson at Oxford. Jen John May is about to go to Cambridge, looking at characterising Shang and Zhou Chinese metal and technology. What I'm currently paid to do is work with John Cook at Aberystwyth and other colleagues in the IMAP pro uh, projects, uh, Trina Gibson and uh, other people, trying to. S but, but one, it's very nice, they kind of believe that what we're talking about is real. So we're trying to look at this underlying flow of material culture, how it's fossilised out into individual objects. And these objects are temporary and could be reused and so forth. And what John Cook is very interested in is spread of uh, uh, languages, identity, alphabets, and so forth. And what we've just started doing with Professor Gosden and Professor Helena Hamro, Oxford is looking at continuities and change across the Roman to early Anglo-Saxon uh, periods. And again, this seems to work very, very nicely. There's a huge amount of continuity from the late Roman period, reuse of that metal into the early Anglo-Saxon. We can very clearly see intrusive metalwork coming from uh, outside, and then fresh metal supplies coming on stream after that initial uh, contact. But thank you very much for listening. Cheers.